صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we're joined by Wissam Ahmed, who is the head of the Center for Applied International Law at Al-Haq, who has been working as a human rights advocate since 2006, focusing on the area of business and human rights within the context of the Palestinian struggle for the right to self-determination. Good morning, Wissam. Good morning, Nasser. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure to have you on board, my friend, a pleasure. With Sam, one of the things we like to do whenever we have a new guest on the show is have them explain their Nakba story. Well, I mean, my parents uh, actually uh, went to the States uh, in the mid-70s, originally from uh, El Bire um, in the West Bank, and uh, they went uh, for, uh, for economic reasons uh, to the U.S., uh, um, looking for the American dream, so to say, and uh, and uh, finding uh, a better life outside of the challenges uh, uh, within the context of occupation. Um, and um, and uh, I grew up, uh, I was born and raised in the US uh, and, uh, and grew up uh, um, most of my life in uh, the South in Louisiana. Uh, and, uh, you know, growing up in the US, uh, but having a Palestinian uh, parents, uh, you know, first generation, uh, hearing them speak about Palestine, Palestine was always, uh, considered home, uh, and and that was instilled uh, within us uh, even growing up in the U.S. And I, as a Palestinian American, born and raised in the U.S., I more felt myself uh, American uh, than Palestinian. Um, uh, with uh, um, regular visits uh, back uh, to Palestine to uh, to visit family, and it was actually a change in uh, um, the perception of, uh, of how I saw myself in relation to the U.S. and in relation to Palestine took a dramatic turn uh, after 9-11, um, where uh, there was this change in perception of those that were around us and how they viewed us. And that led to a self-reflection of how we view ourselves uh, within the context of uh, growing up in the U.S., and uh, that uh, led to some uh, introspection of better identifying uh, where, uh, where I fit within uh, this uh, complex uh, dynamics. And um, after I uh, finished uh, my studies, I did travel and uh, self-exploration to try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And it was actually uh, during a period in South America, I was in Argentina, and uh, there were protests going on uh, against uh, George Bush's visit at the time back in 2005. And in a lot of the uh, Argentinian protesters in the streets of Buenos Aires were wearing Palestinian kofias um, uh, as a symbol of their uh, protest to uh, 
the neoliberal economics uh, being imposed upon them. And that led me to uh, think uh, about uh, um, checking uh, to see what uh, Palestine could offer and what I could offer to Palestine. And so in, in 2006, I uh, um, came for a visit, uh, actually, and I came on my American passport uh, through uh, Tel Aviv. And there uh, they uh, did their background check and they found that uh, my father had registered me when I was very young under his Palestinian ID. So uh, they found that I had a Hawiya number, this Palestinian ID number that the Israelis issue. And they stamped my American passport with that ID number and told me they'll let me through this time, uh, the airport, uh, but uh, I won't be able to come back through the airport. Anytime after that, I have to uh, go via the land crossing uh, through Jordan. And so for me, it was a blessing in disguise because it allowed me to be able to stay in Palestine, uh, which I wasn't sure I'd be able to do. It would have been much more difficult to do on a tourist visa uh, coming in and out and uh, um, asking for this uh, renewal. And, uh, and that opened the door for me to explore Palestine, really get to know Palestine better. I uh, met my wife to be here as well um, and, uh, and uh, found uh, a great job here with uh, Al-Haq, where I've been uh, since the beginning. But I say it was my love for Palestine that brought me here, but it was true love that kept me here. And so now I have uh, my wife and uh, three daughters that I'm uh, raising here in the context of occupation. And it's their future that trying to uh, improve uh, um, with the work that we do. We're going to get to the work at Al-Haq, but just very quickly, your parents have stayed in the States or have they come back? That's uh, they come back and forth. I still have family, brother and sisters in uh, in the U.S., so uh, they go visit. But their ultimate sort of retirement plan is to settle down here in uh, in Palestine. Uh, one of the things that I always, whenever I go home to Palestine, I say home to Palestine because though I look like us but sound like them in the context of my accent, I feel at home in Palestine far more than I feel at home in this colony. Uh, in the system, the white settler colonialist system that exists in Australia as it does in, in North America. Because the smells are our smells, the sounds are our sounds, the language is our language, there's a different concept of home. Right. You've been there fully inoculated now. Uh, you're a proper palo now, having been home so long. So do you find it strange going back to the States now? Are you a tourist there? I think so. I mean, because I'm here more often uh, than there, but I'm also, uh, you know, still a foreigner here as well. And they, they joke about uh, my accent and uh, my Arabic, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the saying, uh, so my, my Arabic is very heavy. But I say with each passing year, I, I reduce the weight a little bit, uh, a kilo here and there. Right. Now, Sam, the reason we've got you on, and you've, you recently published an article in This Week in Palestine, and it's called The Evidence is in the Archives. Now, listeners, we're going to put a link to that in the podcast, so make sure you go and check it out. It is an amazing, an amazing article. You went to the New York Public Library with Sam in 2016, and you discovered a box. Yeah, it was uh, one of those things where I was, uh, I was visiting uh, for, uh, for work purposes, um, and uh, I had a little bit of uh, time uh, to explore around me, and I saw that the New York Public Library was uh, nearby, and I was already interested in the issue of uh, business and human rights and the role of corporations, and uh, so I just did a general search on uh, what might be available there, and uh, the issue of the Palestine Economic Corporation came up in the search. 
Um, and so that triggered my interest to go visit direct. And sure enough, uh, you know, I pull up this, uh, these documents and, and it was my first archival experience. And so it was really an interesting experience of, of almost like treasure hunting, digging, uh, knowing there's a lot of things buried there, but not knowing exactly what you might find. Um, but uh, it was uh, finding this specific document uh, from 1925 uh, titled The Colonization of Palestine, Means and Methods. And this document uh, really laid out the thinking at the time about what was going on in the, the Zionist mindset about how to pursue this colonial endeavor. And I was very fascinated by the fact that they were debating how to pursue the, the colonial ends of philanthropy and uh, king uh, support out of uh, solidarity or pursuing it um, as a business venture along strict business lines. And for me, that reaffirmed what I have been seeing within the context of Palestine today, that Israel has refined a best business practice of colonialism and has made the occupation very profitable, thereby perpetuating, um, prolonging the, the occupation and perpetuating it. And so it was the connection of that past thinking to the present dynamics, which really inspired me to delve deeper into how this business mindset applied to the colonization of Palestine and dig deeper into the different business components that arose throughout the colonization of Palestine and how business interests developed in a way that supported and facilitated this continuing colonial process. Um, uh, with uh, profits being a, a key component to uh, that end being reached. You know, sometimes we'll call it naivety, yeah? the imposition of Israel upon that indigenous land, our land, our forefathers' land. In a naive way, you know, growing up, I thought, how, how could this have happened? There's a, a line in your article and you say, I see in archives as both points on a timeline and a thread that can be pulled further backwards or forwards while connecting to other threads going in different directions that intersect the political, economic and cultural components of any social system at any given time. When we look at the mechanizations of Zionism today and how they profit from the occupation, whether it be the arms industry or architecture, and they sell that to despotic regimes around the world, back to that string Herzl saying, today I gave birth to a Jewish nation. The machination is just, and the documentation is there that clearly illustrates that the imposition of Zionism as a settler colonialist movement upon an indigenous population was never going to be compatible with justice or peace or humanity or any sort of coexistence to get us to this point we are today in the apartheid situation. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to, to just simply take a snapshot in time and say, this is where we are and not question how we got here. But I think in order for us to really understand uh, um, that uh, uh, what has happened to the Palestinian people has been part of a systemic process over time that has been refined and developed. And, and the reason I uh, really like the document uh, that I found in the archives is that it specifically referenced um, the um, initiatives of the British South Africa Company um, and how uh, that was uh, a model that was used. And Theodore Herzl actually, uh, in his diaries, uh, it's uh, stated that he wrote to Cecil Rhodes uh, telling him that he wanted to replicate what he was doing in Southern Africa in the Middle East. And so it, it sheds light on the, the colonial mindset and how it's replicated in different contexts and how it's refined to adapt to particular contexts. And so you had Cecil Rhodes uh, envisioning uh, the Cape Town to Cairo uh, 
um, transport uh, connection. Um, while uh, you had uh, within the Palestinian context the uh, development of the uh, Kirkuk uh, uh, Iraq to uh, Haifa Palestine uh, oil pipeline um, that uh, uh, was going to tap into the newly discovered uh, resources of oil in the Middle East. And so these different uh, elements of uh, uh, geopolitical positioning um, and, uh, and natural resource uh, availability um, uh, coming in uh, to converge with the imperial interests uh, all lead uh, to this uh, shaping of uh, the, the colonial project uh, uh, within the Palestinian context. But the, the other reason I think it's important for us to see it in this broader context of imperial dynamics and, and colonialism is because we see a lot of similarities in other colonial contexts as well. Uh, there are nuances here for sure, uh, but when you step back and you see those broader connections, you see how the injustices that the Palestinian people are suffering are very much connected to injustices that are felt uh, around the world in different contexts. And that's why I always like to point out that the um, injustice facing the Palestinian people is a microcosm of global injustices. And, and the issues that are leading to those uh, are very much uh, shared in, uh, um, in the obstacles that are created and the need to, to challenge them. And those being uh, neoliberal economics and, uh, and white supremacy and the sense of uh, um, entitlement and exploitation. I've said many a time that in fact, the liberation of earth starts with the first domino and that's the overcoming and the decolonization of Palestine and the ending of Zionism. That in fact, the, the power structures that exist in the world all focus upon Zionism and that with its downfall, it becomes a domino that liberates so many other people because it's the model for, that today Modi is using in India that you know we see across most of the developing world where minorities are oppressed by a ruling junta, whoever they might be. Yeah, and one of the things I really, really like, sorry, Sam, one of the things I really like what you said about Cecil Rhodes, I mean, the world recognises Cecil Rhodes as the world's leading colonialist, imposing a non-Indigenous person upon an, uh, another person's land. And Zionists who claim that they are not colonialists, but in fact, Indigenous and returning, that the founder of Zionism, the person who gave birth to the idea of a, an Israel and a Jewish state, in fact, approached Cecil Rhodes and said, I want to do some, I need your help. I've got a project that is Colonialism 101. You're my guy. Yeah, you know, it goes even further back uh, than, uh, than Theodore Herzl and, and Cecil Rhodes. Uh, there's a, a book uh, um, from the 1800s by Benjamin Desireli, political novel, uh, it's titled uh, Tancred, uh, which uh, means uh, the new crusade. Okay. Um, and it uh, lays out uh, this vision of how uh, Western power uh, supported by uh, financial uh, institutions uh, would uh, open the way to the realization of, uh, of the nascent uh, Zionist uh, thinking uh, at the time prior to, to Theodore Herzl's uh, Jewish state. But these issues of the thinking and, and the connection between finance and imperialism are, are not new uh, within the Palestinian context uh, or not new to the world. Um, but what we do see within the Palestinian context is the invocation of the Jewish faith as uh, one of the justifications. And I like to always point out that religion has always played a role in the justification of colonialism. 
And so Palestine is no exception to that, except now it's just a different religion that is being used uh, for that justification. And it's important to keep that in mind. And I think it's important to use that framing to also push back against uh, the attacks that by uh, criticizing Israel and calling for Palestinian self-determination, that you are somehow anti-Semitic. Uh, and I think this issue of trying to conflate uh, religion uh, with these uh, imperial colonial ends are part of the tactic to try to stifle the discussion. But uh, the more empowered we are with details and facts and evidence, uh, such as archival material like this, uh, the better we can uh, push back uh, against these, uh, these arguments. And also uh, to connect to another point that you raised with regard to uh, Palestine uh, being this uh, uh, important part of the broader system and this domino. Uh, and uh, Nelson Mandela said this uh, at the end of apartheid that uh, South Africa will never truly be free until Palestine is free because he recognized those dynamics that are still existent within a post-apartheid, and I say post-apartheid uh, between quotes because it, the reality is the settler colonial uh, implications of apartheid South Africa continue. And looking specifically at the economic dimensions and the ownership of land. And so uh, these issues of, of uh, neoliberal economics and, and parasitic capitalism and this exploitative nature of supremacy we see it existing, continuing in different parts of the world, including South Africa and in the Palestinian context. And so I think it's, it's very much continues to resonate today that in order for Palestine to be free, there needs to be a liberation of the world from these converging issues of neoliberal imperialism and parasitic capitalism and this sense of supremacy and exploitation. We're joined by Wissam Ahmed, who's the head of the Center for Applied International Law at Al-Haq. Wissam, we asked you to choose a song, your favorite song that we're going to play now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the song we're about to listen to? Well, the, the song I chose is Rage Against the Machine, Know Your Enemy. The, the title speaks for itself, and it also connects to the, the research that I've done, is in order to really challenge uh, your adversary, you need to understand the way they think. You need to understand what makes them tick to better uh, counter them. And that's why uh, that song means a lot to me. And it's very uh, motivational uh, for me. Uh, a lot of times I use it uh, even in presentations that I give. I'll have a break uh, and, and play the song as well to motivate those uh, listening in. Brilliant. Stay tuned and listen to Know Your Enemy by Rage Against the Machine.
great song with Sam. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. With Sam, this past week we had a joint statement by the foreign ministries of Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and Sweden. All of them rebuking Israel's designation of six Palestinian NGOs as terrorist organisations. The statement was conclusive. I mean, well, I'd like to, to have gone further, but they said no substantial information was received from Israel that would justify reviewing our policy towards the Palestinian NGOs. And in the absence of such evidence, we will continue our cooperation and strong support for civil society in the occupied Palestinian territories. What's your position on that, Hussein? Well, it's great that it's come. It's a little, uh, it's better now than uh, never, uh, but uh, it's, it reaffirms what we've believed uh, all along, that these attempts to, to uh, or these designations have been just part of a broader process of trying to uh, stifle Palestinian civil society and uh, and silence them in their uh, work uh, in challenging the occupation. They very much see us as an obstacle to their colonial pursuits and the natural reaction to try to remove those obstacles. And we are those obstacles. And so the fact that uh, um, these countries are publicly uh, calling out Israel now is an important step, but I think it also uh, doesn't go far enough. Uh, they need to call on Israel to rescind these designations because the, so long as they continue to exist uh, on paper, even only within Israel, it still has an impact uh, within the broader financial system um, and, and creates uh, this kind of risk elevation uh, that we know that's what they're trying to do, uh, but we need uh, pushback uh, from these uh, states and others uh, against Israel to remove uh, and rescind these designations. But at the same time, uh, we don't expect Israel to back off uh, easily. So there has to be a concerted uh, pressure put on Israel. At the same time, we need to continue to do business as usual and force Israel's hand if it wants to try to challenge us. But right now, what they've been relying on is behavioral psychology, fight or flight, and they've been betting on flight. They've been hoping that uh, people will simply take this issue of, of terrorism uh, being put in the narrative, which is uh, generally part of the strategy of conflating terminology, whether it's terrorism, anti-Semitism, um, and, and putting them in a way uh, that simply distracts people uh, and, and leads them uh, to want to avoid the headache. And uh, luckily, we've had uh, concerted support from many partners uh, that have been willing to bear the headache and continue uh, pushing forward. But uh, we know the, the battle uh, continues. Israel is not going to let up on their attempt to uh, prevent us from doing our work and we need to continue to push forward. But in the context of occupation, our ability to do so is very much connected to the support we have externally as well. So we have to see ourselves within this broader system of struggling internally, but also uh, connecting externally to maintain uh, that support and have that external pressure continue to play a role. Now, I'm going to put a link to your wonderful file that picture the colonial subsidy, the architecture of exploitation and economic incentive structure perpetuating the colonization of Palestine. It's a phenomenal piece of work. We don't have enough time to talk about it today. Talk to us about Al-Haq and your work and how our listeners might be able to support you. 
Well, I mean, Al-Haq is the first Palestinian human rights organization, and it, it was started back in 1979, uh, around the same time that the institutionalization of the human rights regime was developing. And this idea of human rights and, and the UN mechanisms that were being developed were uh, tools that were available to us to pursue the right to self-determination. And Al-Haq started using those tools, international law that was available to pursue them. And over time, we have seen the lack of political will in enforcing international law. But that has also led us to refine our work uh, to engage more creatively in the use of international law, uh, pursuing domestic mechanisms of accountability in, uh, in foreign countries, challenging corporate actors in the area of business and human rights, also challenging the narrative of Israel being the only democracy in the Middle East by highlighting the apartheid nature of the regime imposed on the Palestinian people. And so as the colonial model gets refined to uh, continue to oppress Palestinians, Al-Haq has continued to evolve in challenging that oppression as well. And we feel like we have made progress in instilling the normative appreciation and value of international law within the Palestinian struggle and still making headway, challenging Israel and its policies. And I think that's why Israel has pushed back against us. So if anything, it is a confirmation of the value of our work by branding us in this way. They've given us a badge of honor in continuing our work. And in order for people to support our work, obviously uh, we can't, within the context of occupation and the financial constraints, we don't accept individual donations and, and things like that. But the most important thing, anytime that someone tries to stifle and silence the messenger is to amplify the message that Messenger is taking. And so we encourage people to uh, look at the work that we do on our website, the messaging that uh, we are putting out and try to amplify it uh, within their context and pressure their uh, institutions wherever they are, whether it's at a university level, a business level, and a governmental level, all of these actors play a role in the shaping of political will within a particular context. And even though it might seem like this, the obstacle uh, is very insurmountable if we look at it in its totality. If each one of us contributes a small part in moving in the right direction, eventually that tide of justice will turn and we're confident in that. Thanks so very much, Wissam. Thanks for joining us. Wissam Ahmed, the head of the Center for Applied International Law at Al-Haq. Thanks for listening. Make sure you go to the podcast and look at those couple of articles of Wissam's. They're absolutely brilliant. You won't be disappointed. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast. Tell your friends. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.